0: reaching net zero emissions by 2050 seems out of reach in the absence of a major acceleration of clean energy technology innovations.
1: India as you know is keenly looking at
0: accelerating its entire innovation ecosystem and clean energy forms a major component of it. The startup ecosystem is challenging the status quo. It's audacious, ambitious, you know, it's trying to reimagine and transform the way we produce and consume. And uh, not just energy, but anything.
2: I just think we need, um, we probably need tens of companies, if not hundreds, of the size of VPN Shell just working on decarbonization. I believe that in a space like
3: this, it's important for a company to keep disrupting not just the market, but also itself. I'm an optimist and I think uh, people might be thinking in a linear fashion, but a lot of these things happen non-linearly, so.
0: The system's change in some of these sectors, such as mobility, is very palpable.
3: For the world to reach net zero carbon emissions by 2050, up to 50% of emissions avoided by then are likely to come from technologies that are not available to purchase in the markets today.
4: This staggering number emerges from the International Energy Agency's global analysis on the future of our energy systems and emissions pathways. It charts out one potential journey to acting on climate change and limiting the global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius compared to the pre-industrial average. The number
3: illustrates the importance of innovation to create new energy technologies and improve existing ones. But what does it really mean where it matters, in the labs and at the marketplace? Hi, this is Innovation Frontlines, a podcast by the International Energy Agency on the innovations and innovators that could help take us to a net zero emissions future. I'm Siddharth Singh, a consultant with the IEA based in India, working on a range of issues that impact energy transitions.
4: And I'm Simon Bennett a technology analyst with the IA in Paris, leading work on energy innovation policy globally. Innovation Frontlines is our podcast about how dynamic and vital the area of clean energy innovation is right now. It takes you right into the worlds of the experts, engineers and business people working on those frontlines. In particular, we'll be speaking to some of the brightest energy entrepreneurs to tell the stories of how they are trailblazing a narrow path from research lab to market. We want to learn what it takes to successfully disrupt different parts of the energy system and what key factors are helping or hindering energy transitions.
3: And this season of the podcast is specifically about clean energy innovation in India. To us, the choice of India is obvious. IE's analysis shows that India will account for the largest energy demand growth of all major countries and regions over the next two decades. That's more than China, more than Southeast Asia or the entire continent of Africa.
4: Over those next two decades, India is expected to add the equivalent of 13 Mumbais to its urban population, more than double its built space, more than double its iron, steel and cement production, and double the stock of vehicles that are on the road.
3: The good news is that India has a thriving innovation ecosystem, with young startups working on energy innovation challenges of the future. Some of the solutions they're working on would help ensure that India's growth will not be carbon intensive. And of course, We're very excited to get in the nuts and bolts of their innovations.
4: Indeed, Siddharth. It's also a very nice feeling to welcome the audience along for the ride.
3: And to share this journey with us, we have someone special joining us today.
4: While this season of the podcast is hosted by
3: Simon and myself, we have invited one of our favorite colleagues to co-host this first episode with us. Lucila is Innovation Frontline's guide to energy finance and investments, and she's here to help us set the scene. Welcome, Lucilla. It's great to have you join us and explore this innovation story and its role in climate action.
1: Thank you, Siddharth. Thank you, Simon. I'm Lucila Arbolesha. I'm an analyst at the IEA covering finance and investment issues that relate to clean energy transitions. I've been looking into the financing opportunity for deploying technologies like renewable energy or power grids at a large scale, and the numbers are quite Eye watering, they're quite impressive, especially for projects in major emerging markets. At a global level, we're talking about average annual investment in solar and wind, for example, almost quadrupling, and annual investment in transmission and distribution almost tripling by the end of the next decade. Which means that if the world is successful at shifting onto a pathway compatible with eliminating net emissions from fossil fuels, then it will be the investment story. Of this century. But of course, companies and governments won't be able to take advantage of this opportunity without some big changes in the policy landscape that will help channel capital and particular types of capital to the right places. And I'm sure we'll talk about this through the episode. And I think you two have been looking at the other end of the technology pipeline and finding some of the same insights when it comes to funding the ideas for new solutions to energy challenges that we'll need to deploy in the future. I'm here today precisely to get your perspectives on that and help me and the audience understand this better.
4: Hi, Lucilla and thanks for helping us to set the scene. Before we get started in this conversation on the topic of understanding the precise role of innovation, and we're going to have to, I think, take a bit of a step back and understand the role of what we're talking about when we say this expression, net zero emissions in relation to climate change. A short explanation of a complex scientific topic. The starting point is that the world adds billions of tonnes of greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide and methane to the atmosphere. Now, these greenhouse gases being added every year means that there's an accumulation of them in the atmosphere, the concentration rises, and this is effectively what is heating the planet as the solar radiation gets trapped intention, if we're to tackle climate change, is to limit that concentration at as low a level as possible, but also stabilize it. And what that implies is that at some point, you need to have a perfect balance, or a near perfect balance as possible, between new emissions being added to the atmosphere and the withdrawals from the atmosphere of these greenhouse gases, so that there is no continuing increase in concentration over time. And that's what this term net zero actually implies. And many countries have now determined targets for around about the middle of this century to hit that balanced moment where the uh, emissions into the atmosphere are balanced with the withdrawals from the atmosphere. So they will only emit as much as they can actually remove. And India, for its part, has picked 2070 as the year when it would like to attain that target. Uh, other countries have 2050. China is looking at something more like 2060 for its climate neutrality pledge. And you know, the technologies, just to summarize, that are available for withdrawing CO2, for example, from the atmosphere, you know, are things like something called direct air capture, which is a technology for using mechanical tools for removing the CO2. But we also have a technology that's much longer established than that, which is called TREES. Uh, So those are some of the the options we have.
3: Now, coming back to innovation, there are three headline numbers that I'd like to share drawn from recent IE analysis. Firstly, 50% of emissions avoided in 2050 in a net zero emission scenario come from technologies that you cannot purchase in the markets today. Secondly, there will be an explosive growth in clean energy technologies over the coming decades. Clean energy markets would be worth a cumulative of 30 trillion US dollars by 2050 in a net zero emission scenario. This offers us an unprecedented level of market opportunities along the entire clean energy supply chain. Thirdly, emerging and developing economies would need to account for about 60% of the world's energy investments if we are to limit temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius globally,
4: yeah. And when we were talking about this earlier, Siddharth, and we were putting together these, what, what I would call statistics from the future, and we were talking about three key takeaways here. So, one is that technologies need to get better and better. Two, the successful developers who can commercialize the most suitable products in each sector face a once in a generation market opportunity. And I don't think that that is overstated. And three, if you' are not solving for the challenges in countries like India and also Asian and African contexts more broadly, then you're cutting yourself off from most of the future earnings around the world. And somebody else might get to greater scale first if they can tackle those markets.
1: That's a nice summary, Simon. And maybe just let me add um, one point uh, related to your third point, <laughs> which is that to get things fully deployed, it does take a, a bit of time sometimes, and this is especially true in emerging and developing economies. For example, we recently, um, well, last year, we published a report called Financing Clean Energy Transitions in Emerging and Developing Economies. And we point precisely to the fact that there's still a lot of stuff that needs to be solved. And by stuff, we actually mean sort of perceived risks by investors and financiers in sort of two broad topics. One is cross-cutting issues, and other are sort of sector-specific issues. Um, and by issues, we, I mean, it's about changing the policies around those factors. Cross-cutting uh, issues are those around restrictions on foreign direct investment and currency convertibility, risk of currency devaluations, things that are not um, limited to energy-specific and particularly not innovation. These are issues that are true or like are important for financiers and investors, whether you're in investing in health or in energy and within energy, whether they are sort of mature technologies or technology innovation. But there's also very sector specific things uh, like um, starting by developing power expansion plans that are optimized and least cost, you know, sort of things that may be very technical, uh, but basically... When we look at, for example, projects in emerging and developing economies, we see that uh, they don't always, like some of the proposed projects do not always have a firm economic justification, which means that then there's overinvestment in some parts of the energy system and then constraint in other parts, or the contracts, sort of this very um, important piece underlying uh, or, or or the contracts which then define the risks between the public and the private sector for renewable power projects. Uh, they need to be very well done. And, and we sort of know, sort of the world knows kind of how to do that, but there's still a lot of work that needs to be done to putting all of that in place at the right base to get um, the investment flowing and particularly private investment flowing. Uh, and of course, this is true for mature, mature economies, I'm sorry if I got kind of overexcited uh, on some some technical terms or 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 at least with with some things that are a bit detailed. But going back to innovation in particular, um, sometimes I feel sort of it's a bit of an abstract topic or term. Is that is that true? So what what do you mean in practice, uh, or I mean, what do we mean at the IA, But particularly, what you will you be discussing in this? in next episodes, which are the technologies of the future?
3: I think those are some excellent uh, points, Lucila, and uh, that's a very pertinent question. Uh, But I feel that before we get to that question, uh, let's just take a step back to understand the role of innovation in the global effort to decarbonize the energy system. And of course, also the main areas where we require improvements. What are some of the technologies and fuels that are currently not on track to be deployed at the scales that are needed to move to the net zero pathway? And what role can innovation play on that front?
4: So where did we go to answer those questions? Well, we turned to the IEA's expert on the topic.
5: I am Araceli Fernandez. I'm the head of the technology and innovation unit within the IEA, uh, and also is part of the technology and policy division.
4: And when we called Araceli, there was one particular question that was on my mind. And it's because I've been struck in recent years by the way in which there are some advocates of rapid energy transitions, who are stressing the need for more effort on technology development, but they are loudly criticised in that, in turn, by people who are saying that plunging renewables and batteries costs already mean that we have the technologies that we need, and that we just need to to get on with it, and we shouldn't put too much effort into technology development. Or at least that's the way that I see some of the debate going. And to me, I feel as if in some cases the disagreement isn't necessarily about innovation needs but more about definitions or about the right way to communicate the challenge to the public and to, to policymakers. So what I wanted to know from Maricelli is more like this. Do we have all of the technologies that we need? What's the latest status on that and uh, what's her opinions on where we need to focus attention?
5: Well, we have the certainly the technologies available on the market today uh, to help us achieve the emission reductions required to 2030 to put the world on track for net zero emissions by 2050. If we think about different applications to improve energy efficiency, uh, but also we think about renewables uh, and electric cars and many more. But it's true that a full transition to net zero emissions by 2050 will require more than that. It will require tackling emissions in sectors like long distance transports and heavy industries where we have identified the technologies that can help us achieve that full decarbonisation. But we haven't uh, simply uh, get it at scale uh, the technologies that will be needed. Many of them are still at demonstration or even prototype stage. Also, those clean technologies available today on the market are still not competitive in the regional contexts, uh, or can still present some integration challenges when deployed at large scale. One could think of, uh, for example, renewable electricity or electric cars. Certainly, uh, innovation can help overcome that last mile and help improve further their performance, reduce their costs and even uh, their demand for critical materials. But some of these technical improvements are likely to come as a result of more deployment and governments can really accelerate them to reduce the risks of missing global targets. However, uh, it's also true that we certainly need innovation and technology deployment to go hand in hand, given the urgency of tackling climate change. So we really need to look at both aspects uh, simultaneously.
4: Great. So if I understand what you're saying correctly, the problem is not that we're waiting for a technological miracle to come up with a new solution. It's really that we we have identified technologies in all of the areas that we need, but many of them are just not at the the level at which they're available on the market or at the right costs yet and sometimes I like to imagine these the, the sort of the availability of the technologies as if I was in a A big supermarket and different sections of the supermarket were labeled with the different technical challenges. And we'd be able to see that in some areas of the supermarket, there were a lot of available products that we could take off the shelves. And in others, the the shelves are are still empty for the moment. Um, Can you give us some examples of which are the areas where we still have empty shelves?
5: Well, that's that's quite an interesting image, certainly. Uh, Well, uh, particularly, I would uh, highlight those areas that are more difficult uh, to electrify, uh, even with important technology developments, uh, perhaps because they require very high temperatures or because they involve uh, materials that are not conductive to electricity or or perhaps because of all reasons. Uh, Some examples uh, that I could highlight uh, could be Low emission production for materials uh, like steel, cement, or different chemicals. Uh, Also the production of low emission synthetic fuels uh, for aviation or shipping. Again, long distance transport being important here. Um, But also, of course, uh, such fuels could be used in other types of applications as well. And uh, we don't have to forget the associated value chains from the sourcing of the carbon uh, that would be needed for some of these fuels and would be ingrained in them when would be relevant to the design as well of the vehicles that could accommodate such fuels. Uh, And certainly uh, another important cross-cutting area uh, that we should highlight here as well would be effective long-duration energy storage, which is also an important challenge that can uh, really uh, help, uh, again, fill some of the gaps that we see in terms of the the pace of the transition.
4: I mean, some people like to characterize the, the debate as being between you know, technology and innovation uh, and entrepreneurship on the one hand, and government policy and deployment on the on the other hand, in some senses. Uh, but i I suspect that there's a closer link between policy and innovation than, than some people imagine. Do you have any thoughts on on the links between the the two areas?
5: Yeah no, uh, certainly, I think I mean, I, I would be of the opinion indeed uh, that technology and policy are very closely uh, interlinked. Uh, we've seen in different uh, cases where there is this uh, virtuous cycle in a way uh, where technical improvements lead to cost reductions and makes it easier um, somehow as well to fund projects or to look for uh, mobilizing uh, efforts and resources and as well to make it easier uh, to pass more ambitious climate policy. And this then at the same time would lead towards more learning and more technical uh, improvements. Uh, We've seen that uh, clearly uh, when we look at uh, the evolution of solar PV, of wind, uh, even of electric cars. And we're starting to see that uh, when uh, we look at hydrogen, particularly uh, on the developments related to uh, electrolyzers when it comes to the increasing capacity, the uh, uh, better performance that we're seeing in the uh, different projects that are coming up, and also in the steel sector, which is also Uh, An area where we're seeing growing momentum, uh, particularly uh, a bit earlier in the kind of innovation cycle. So we're looking into demonstration projects for low emission technologies. But we see there as well uh, a bit of a a change of paradigm when it comes to the appetites of different industry players uh, to uh, join efforts in putting some demonstration projects in place. While at the same time, uh, government supported supporting or helping out making these projects uh, become a reality
3: this is a truly fascinating perspective simon a conversation with araselli really helped clarify the distinction between the continual improvement of existing technologies and targeted efforts to lift less mature technologies to market readiness both of which of course are essential
4: yeah exactly my take is that with the right incentives from government The first of those, the deployment of existing technologies, can hopefully rely quite a lot on the innovative power of private enterprise, whereas for the latter, there's much more of a risk that expensive first-of-a-kind projects won't actually get built without dedicated government helping. If we think about some of the really big flagships that are in the news these days, like hydrogen-based steel mills, they're complex, they're big, and they need a lot of capital investment up front.
1: Well, I also really liked and agree with Araceli's last comment about the virtuous cycle between technology and policy. In, in fact, in our work on investment in energy projects in emerging markets, we see clearly that policy support is rapidly or and has been rapidly helping investment in solar PV, for example. That's sort of a, a big example and one where, where India has been particularly um, successful, for example. And we see how policy is helping drive down costs. And this is sort of how scale and competition for the market helps drive um drive down capital costs. So this is sort of the the costs of the of the solar PV panels, for example, because it's more competition. And because banks are being more comfortable financing these projects, they they know how. The famous contracts that I mentioned before work and and even like sort of private investors, they are willing to lend um, money to these projects in the form of bonds, but also uh, the cost of capital and the financing cost, basically, as better policies improve risk perceptions. And um, these are, again, the sort of sector-specific policies in particular uh, that I was mentioning at the beginning. Um, So all in all, policies have been improving, there's still a lot to do, but there would be no chance of effective policy support without the technology improvements that have um, been associated with global deployment in the past decades. And I think that's where this sort of, this virtual cycle, uh, this point on this virtual cycle is very important. Uh, And I know that I think you two have been looking into what's happening in India, Does, does it Does this resonate with the situation
4: there? Yes, absolutely. But I'm going to add a a little additional aspect to what you've just described in terms of the the virtuous circle here, Lucilla. And maybe this is a personal view rather than an empirical result. But in a country like India, which needs rising national prosperity, jobs, improved livelihoods for citizens, uh, and needs to implement policies to meet the goal of net zero emissions by 2070, My impression is that that job of implementing the policies will actually be more attractive if there's a portfolio of locally developed affordable technologies that's ready to attract the necessary investment. And so I almost think about two different virtuous circles when it comes to innovation. The international one, uh, where we have deployments and policies and attention that are helping to drive down costs in general, but then this local one, where we have the, the specific environments, making sure that the, the support for the policies is there because the local companies are actually the ones that are standing to benefit.
3: I think that's right, Simon. Uh, India's particularly interesting because there's a lot of buzz around the startup ecosystem. When we started looking for innovators to speak to for this podcast, we were directed almost exclusively to the founders of young startups, those that were raising venture capital finance to scaling up and commercializing their innovations. The venture capital ecosystem in India has been getting much more sophisticated on the backs of entrepreneurship and the well-developed software economy. Bangalore, or Bengaluru as it's now called, and also cities like Hyderabad and parts of Kurgaon are now even competing with Silicon Valley for talent and young graduates today as they dream of starting cool companies and turning them into the future unicorns. We will of course speak with energy innovators and entrepreneurs, but today to get an insider's perspective into clean energy innovation in India, we call upon someone at the forefront of these efforts. Someone who works between the government, the private sector, and of course, the investment community.
4: Smita Rakesh is is vice president and partner of, of Social Alpha, and is leading their work in sustainability and climate. She's also responsible for the Clean Energy International Incubation Center in New Delhi and an expert on, on this topic. Thanks, Simon. Smita, you know, can you give us a sense of what India's energy innovation system um, currently looks like? What does the ecosystem look like? And what has changed uh, in the past five years since you've been closely involved?
0: In the last few years, uh, the cost of renewable energy technologies has come down. Innovation in energy efficiency and in new technologies, particularly uh, you know, the early stage innovation ecosystem, uh, has been very, very fertile. We are seeing more investor interest. Uh, yes, um, you know, the risk appetite is yet to sort of increase and and show more uh, scope for newer innovations to be supported. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, there's a significant improvement in investor interest. Um, more importantly, we can see that the systems change in some of the sectors, such as mobility, is very palpable. The entire sector is poised to transition to a more sustainable and uh, renewable-driven sector. And um, there is also, like, the space has become more collaborative and more uh, engaging. Uh, There is far more uh, scope to grow in terms of stakeholders coming together and working closely. But in the last few years, I've seen a significant and pleasant change in the collaboration across actors.
4: You mentioned that there's been a real uptick in activity among early stage innovators in india and this is something that you know that i see from the outside that we're looking at in this podcast the landscape for for startups especially seems to be something where there's more expectation in india that that's the route through which innovation will come from is that something that you would you would agree with and why do you think that might be the case in india compared to other places
0: i agree with that and uh... I think that's because the startup ecosystem is challenging the status quo. It's audacious, ambitious, you know, it's trying to reimagine and transform the way we produce and consume and uh, not just energy, but anything. Um, There's innovation happening in large companies as well. And I agree with that. But in most cases, unfortunately, it's happening with a tunnel vision and with limitations to risk taking and super short term goals in mind. And that's why we see more cases of incremental innovation, which is you know, often not stemming from a net zero compatible mindset and it's missing the future's perspective. I mean, the industries in you know, the industry majors who are innovating with commitment to climate are there, but they're very few. And having said that, I also want to add that um, while startup innovation ecosystem can create new solutions, it does need the industry giants, along with the other stakeholders, to adopt and scale these solutions. You know, we can't have them wash off their hands this responsibility. Um, Like the IEA report also says, uh, the energy transition report, um, you know, from IEA uh, said that 35% of emission reduction potential lies with innovations at the early stage, and nearly half of them haven't even reached the market. This is where um, big industry players have a big role to play. Um, You know, they need to, uh, the established industries need to um, support in being that market. Also, in bringing that market closer to the innovations, I think the future lies in the seamless integration between the industry and the startups, and that's going to be the way forward for India as well as uh, also globally.
3: Smita, I think the two words that you've used here, audacious and ambitious, more than any other, describe what's happening in India's energy innovation ecosystem. Uh, I think India's startup community has what it takes to not just innovate, but also work with established industrial giants to ensure that uh, these technologies reach the scale that is needed to really have an impact at the level of the economy. Uh, Thank you, Smita, for uh, joining us today and sharing your thoughts on this.
1: Thank you. Okay, it's a lot of information to take in, but I can definitely see the logic behind your excitement about this idea or about this area. So if I can recap what we've heard, I would say that um, first, we already have many of the tools we need to combat climate change in the energy sector. We won't be able to get emissions anywhere near as low as we'd like to without technology innovation. I mean, alongside policy and finance, It is a critical piece of the puzzle. So that's sort of one big point. Then when we break down the global problem geographically, we see the importance of countries like India in terms of where investment needs to flow. Not only is India's economy large and growing, but its population also has aspirations for better energy services and also a bigger stake in innovation. And innovation can unlock stronger policy for energy transitions and the government of India has been uh, nurturing a startup ecosystem that can support entrepreneurs with brilliant new ideas. Uh, and that's what we're discussing in this podcast. And, and in fact, what's happening at incubators like Smita's sound, uh, sounds very encouraging. But you two will remember that when we first uh, talked about this podcast, I asked you whether we can really, for example, expect startups in the energy sector to really scale up to become the dominant players in the market. I mean, everyone sort of always points out to examples like Tesla, uh, but making fancy cars for wealthy individuals uh, in in advanced economies seems to me to be qualitatively different from the traditional energy sector with its utilities, sort of regulated businesses, and particularly regulated monopolies, and in many cases, state-owned enterprises. And uh, on the other hand, also international giants, some of them public, some of them private. So why focus on startups? What can they really expect to achieve? What is sort of their added value? Did you come up with an answer to this?
4: Well, we did give it some thought. And firstly, there's a rather obvious point that these big energy companies have always relied on thousands of smaller suppliers of equipment and components. And some of those companies have gone on to grow into multinationals in their own right. But I'm not sure that's quite the point that you're trying to get at. So. We also dug into a particularly interesting little story of a small Danish engineering company with around 100 employees that in the 1970s secretly started in experimenting with alternatives to conventional energy production. And this was at the time that there was an oil crisis taking hold in the 1970s. And This is an interesting story because it shows how a small energy sector outsider can get a toehold in what is otherwise a hostile market and do so through technical excellence and then start scaling up. So the the company spent several years in stealth mode, working on its technology. It partnered with some local blacksmiths. And then in 1979, it sold and installed its first wind turbine, which had a 10-meter rotor diameter and 30 kilowatts of capacity, so not enormous. But it allowed them to secure a few orders, to build a factory, to experiment with new types of materials that could overcome some identified initial design flaws. And then within just a couple of years, it was in a position to benefit from a United States uh, tax break for wind power that allowed it to supply people who are looking to have off-grid power uh, supplies. And so we move on a few years. And by 1987, although, you know, like any clean energy startup, it's dealing with uh, you know cyclical financial crises and you know, the impacts of changing subsidies in different countries. And at that point, it was chosen for six wind power projects uh, all the way in India, which were sponsored by Delhi State Finance Agency. And it continued innovating to lower costs and to provide smooth electricity for now more grid-connected projects. So I mean, fast forwarding, we got 20 years after that first windmill in 1979. The company is in a position to start moving into offshore wind. It has the leading design for offshore wind turbines. And, you know, it it even manages to list on the Copenhagen Stock Exchange as a wind company, you know, distinctly fossil fuel world. And this gentleman explained all of that to us.
2: So my name is Amar Varyabha. And my designation is Senior Director, Public Affairs and Business Development, Vestas India and Southeast Asia. So today, you know, Vesta stands at uh, more than 29,000 employees worldwide. We have commissioned 145 gigawatt of wind power projects around the world uh, with more than 80,000 turbines and almost 15 billion euro in revenue. In India, if you see, uh, we have uh, presence in uh, uh, all the windy states. We have uh, our headquarter in Chennai. We have uh, uh, two factories in India one in gujarat one in tamil nadu we have the largest r&d center outside of denmark is located in chennai we have uh, 25 to 30 site offices and uh, sales office in mumbai and in delhi we have state of the art prepared center training center um, and so much of uh, expanded footprint we have commissioned around 4000 uh, megawatt of wind power projects in the country and india is one of the most important manufacturing hub for wind energy sector you know and Vestas is very much partner to that
1: now um, let me ask one of those important and often ignored questions that is all too often in fact <laughs> left for women to pose and what about sort of the sector's diversification from research and academia to prototype production, energy innovation, as most of the energy sector, um, I imagine that this is also um, a sector where we see sort of this, where there's a case of missing women. Is is that the case? Uh, of course, diversification goes well beyond sort of the women-men ratio. Um, do you see different backgrounds, uh, for example, coming into um, innovation?
3: Uh, This is such an important issue, Lucila. I think there's an uh, undeniable gap uh, in the appropriate representation in the sector. Uh, It's something we realized very early on as we started reaching out to entrepreneurs within India. Women entrepreneurs and innovators were very hard to find. And this is despite India having a relatively higher share of women in the the STEM fields, the the so-called science technology fields. Uh, In fact, going beyond women, other historically disadvantaged groups, this is those along the line of caste, uh, minority religions, ethnicities, they were also harder to find. The clean tech sector has been struggling with this because dominant social structures that are pervasive in the society as a whole also exist within energy, entrepreneurship, and of course, investing. And uh, this is actually an issue that uh, came up in our conversations with Smitha earlier. Uh, so here's what she had to say when we asked her for potential solutions to redress the problem.
0: I don't know if I have a silver bullet to this problem because you know it is a systemic and structural problem. Um, not having uh, the the appropriate representation of uh, marginalized groups of groups that uh, have historically been um, you know underrepresented. Uh, and speaking of gender and women representation, for example, I think it's a, it's a problem that needs to be resolved um, in, in a more structural way. But at the same time, you know, taking responsibility for, the, for what we are engaged in and, and where we come in. I think what we need to do is we need to collectively unpack this issue. Um, the pipeline of women entrepreneurs, if we were to pick gender, for example, is thin. And it is uh, also shrinking at every subsequent stage um, as we uh, move further in the the life cycle of a startup, uh, with the denominator becoming smaller and smaller at every successive stage. It is far worse for uh, science and tech-based startups and in the deep tech space, uh, which is why you see the kind of under-representation in clean energy. And I think what we need to do is we need to understand what are the factors that are leading to the further thinning of that pipeline, even if you can't do much with the pipeline, uh, that that we can uh, you know help with, that we can work around. For example, where is it that our own mindsets and practices are restricting and limiting uh, and are causing this further thinning of this pipeline? How do we... Do we at our workplaces, in our investment processes, in our um, ecosystem enablement, how inclusive are we in our approaches? And I think there needs to be a more introspective exercise for every sector, for every organization, and for every uh, individual, to be honest, in this space. Um, There will be more women on the other side of the table when you have more women on, on, on your side of the table so practicing inclusion as much as in your own value systems and in your own um, you know value proposition as much as uh, as much as expecting it in the startup ecosystem and then driving it through practices such as talking about and celebrating successful women entrepreneurs uh, successful examples of uh, you know enterprises which have been uh, inv- engaging women in their entire value chain and not just at Uh, as women in the decision-making space, but also have been working with women in the backward and forward linkages uh, of the startup.
1: I think Smita is spot on in that it's both a systemic issue and one that requires efforts across the value chain, from bringing more women to the field to actually then retaining them. I confess also sometimes that I find it a bit frustrating how existing policies and norms at a firm level still leave women making different calculations about career risk compared to men especially if career and family finances are intertwined which i imagine is a particular challenge for women entrepreneurs or women that are startup founders for example in fact one i mean problem that we find is that is a lack of data we don't um, it's very hard to quantify diversification. There's not a lot of data publicly available. Um, and that's sort of the starting point to really understand the problem. Uh, but at the IEA, we have been working on this. We've, um, I mean, the statistics department has created um, indicators, looked at specific countries, specific sectors. We've done commentaries to try to illustrate um, kind of how the energy sector or particular sectors have. Um, you know, what's what's the scene in terms of diversification. For example, there was a report on um, gender and, and sort of gender issues in, in, in the rooftop solar in India. Um, so these are all of the things that we've been looking at and we hope to expand in the future, or we're actually planning to es- expand in the future. And I invite anyone who's interested to uh, look at the IA website for more information on this. This has been, for me, quite um, a fascinating <laughs> scene-setter episode. And, I mean, it seems like there's no shorter shortage of opportunity, necessity, or also challenges in the area of clean energy innovation, um, especially in India. So, in terms of what's coming next, what can we expect from the next episodes?
3: So, Lucila, uh, well, starting with the next episode uh, that will be published in this podcast feed the next week, we will drill down into some of the stories of India's brightest energy innovators. Each episode will feature an interview with the founder in which we will ask them about where they found their inspiration, where they're finding their finance, and how they're overcoming specific challenges in their technology areas.
4: Yes, that's right. We'll be covering areas that are going to include new battery designs, electric vehicles, carbon capture, materials recycling, and many others besides. What I think I'd like to do here is to leave the last word to Araceli, who we spoke to earlier, and she told us about which sectors to look out for when we were arranging our in-depth discussions with innovators and entrepreneurs in India. And so what we did is we put her right on the spot and we said, Araceli, can you tell us about two technology areas where you think we're going to see some of the biggest changes in this decade? And this is what she said.
5: First one would be on uh, related to low emission materials production. Uh, where we are seeing this growing momentum on uh, ongoing demonstration projects, ranging from hydrogen-based steel production to cement kilns that could be equipped with carbon capture for storage and utilization. Uh, this decade is where we expect really to have this inflection point and have most of these process technologies being demonstrated at scale. The other area that I would, I would highlight could uh, be, in a way, a bit of a change uh, of paradigm in terms of applying a value chain perspective when it comes to technology design. I think this is an area of growing interest that would be key as well to avoid potential disruptions in this decade. Um, for instance, just to make it this a bit more tangible, if we think about battery chemistries uh, and how they are designed, we could think about possibilities and strategies to diversify and reduce the amount of critical metals that are required uh, for those. And this also enables an easier uh, kind of end of life processing and recycling that would be critical to reduce the stress on some of these value chains when we look at such a rapid uh, scale up. There is also a growing need to alleviate this uh, pressure, uh, particularly in the upstream parts of those value chains when we look, we think about mining and processing operations of these critical minerals, which typically require lonely times to expand and are likely to face some difficulties to keep the pace of expanding electromobility, uh, the electromobility industry, for instance. Again, just to highlight that in these different steps along value chains, we are talking about very different types of technologies, uh, ranging from very large-scale uh, technologies that need to be tailored to specific sites and demonstrated in different configurations that typically then incur in longer uh, lead times compared to, perhaps more down-the-line technologies in these value chains that are, getting more small, uh, modular and can be mass-produced. If we just take the example, as I was highlighting, of batteries on one side and then upstream uh, looking at mines, for instance, and mine operations. So I think this change of uh, the way uh, to approach technologies and think about those implications farther upstream uh, in value chains is uh, would be important. And we're st- starting to see Uh, some of these considerations already in uh, in today's markets.
4: You've been listening to Innovation Frontlines, a podcast by the International Energy Agency on the innovators and innovations that can take India and indeed the world to a net zero emissions future. Our next episodes will feature in-depth conversations with India's most promising innovators working on this global challenge.